Right. So today we'll be in Judges 6, um, but for the reading, we're going to be in Judges 6, verses 11 through 27. That's on page 205 in the Bibles around the room. When I'm done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll reply, thanks be to God. So Judges 6, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat underneath the terebinth of the Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite. While his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, please, sir if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers reaccounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the smite of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and the least, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, Now if I... Now, if I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from the ephah of flour. The meat he put in the basket and the broth he put into the pot and brought them to him underneath the terebinth and he presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God. For now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it still stands in Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiserites. The night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for using us in ways that can only be done through and because of you. You use us despite our weaknesses and despite of who we are to do your work. We ask that you open our hearts to what we need to hear today and speak through Pastor Kyle. Amen.
right. I love that doom and gloom video, don't you guys? Well, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're in Judges chapter 6, so grab your Bible, open up to that page. It's going to be page 206 in the Bibles that we set around the room. And if you're new to our church, one of the things that we love to do at Living Stones is we love preaching through books of the Bible. And we believe that God has spoken throughout the entirety of the scriptures. And so right now we're in this series of Judges. And the book of Judges is really a tragedy. It's in the literary genre of tragedy. It's, um, It's doom and gloom. Because what it shows us is how bad things get when humans start to do what's right in their own eyes instead of God's eyes. It always leads to a downward spiral of death and destruction. And it hasn't really been that bad up until this point. Has it been kind of fun, some fun stories? Uh, but chapter 6, uh, there's two more fun stories, and then it's a turning point. Chapter 6 is the turning point of the whole book where everything really starts to go downhill. But still, in the beginning of chapter 6, which we find ourselves in today, uh, it doesn't start out well. The people have totally abandoned worshiping God. And it reminds me of when you buy a new house, one of the first things that an inspector comes by and does is they want to check the foundation. And they're going to take a look at the foundation. And, and, and that's a, it's a very important thing because if the foundation lacks integrity, what's going to happen to the whole house? The whole thing will crumble. And what we see here with this passage is that the people of God love to bear the name of God, but they lacked faithful integrity. They worshiped other gods. They, they said, oh yeah, we belong to God, but if you would look at them and you would look at their lives, they didn't value God at all. They had other gods at the center of their lives. And in many ways, you could say that about the American church too, I think, couldn't you? That it's really easy to love to bear the name of God. But if you take a close look at our lives, we have to ask ourselves, is God at the center? Do we have faithful integrity? And here we just see over and over, it's kind of encouraging on a weird sick and twisted note because you just, every chapter it says, and again, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And you wake up and you say, at least I'm not the only one. But this is true. We all tend to lack faithful integrity to our God. So the question is, is how do we maintain faithful integrity to God? How do we be a type of people who actually has God at the center? Who isn't a bunch of walking hypocrites? How do we be a church that really does value God? How do we have faithful integrity? Well, here's, I think, the answer that we see in this passage. Faithful integrity requires God's charity. It requires God's grace, his movement towards us and giving us gifts that we don't deserve. And that's exactly what we see here in this call of Gideon. The people of Israel are... Uh, sinning against God, but then God has a movement towards them of grace and it calls them back into faithful integrity. So faithful integrity requires God's charity. So we're going to break just basically two points today. Uh, God's charity leads to faithful integrity. So let's take a look at it. Starting in chapter one of verse six, if you're new to the Bible, by the way, you're welcome to take one of these Bibles home with you. You can have it as a gift. We love to give Bibles away. Um, and the big numbers in your Bible are the chapters, and the little numbers are the verses, all right? So let's take a look. Chapter 6, verse 1, it says this. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, 
And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So how does this passage start? Not on a good foot. (laughs) The passage starts out with, again, the people do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And we learned that that phrase in this book means that they forgot God. They, They started living as if God didn't exist. That's what it means to do what is evil. And that's all that sin is. All that sin is, is living as if God doesn't exist. And they started to live in this pattern and they started to worship the gods of the land, even though that God had given them that land and he said, I want you to worship me. They abandoned him and started worshiping created things instead of the creator God. And so what we see here is that God gives them, in response to their sin, God gives them charity. He gives them grace. And the first movement of charity comes in the form of a severe humbling He hands them over, it says, to their enemies, the Midianites and the Amicalites. You can never say those words, but if you just say them fast and confident, nobody knows you messed up, okay? That's how you read the Old Testament. So God hands them over, and he severely humbles them. So what it looks like is he hands them over, and he allows these enemies to come and basically enslave them. And so they're loosely organized and they come and they come on them like raiders and marauders and they take all their food and their livestock and then they bounce. And every time a new harvest comes in, they come in and they steal their food and then they bounce. I mean, it's pretty crummy life and this happens for seven years. It reminds me, I've watched way too many kids movies because I have little kids. It reminds me of the movie, The Bug's Life. If you've seen The Bug's Life, you know that the little ants are working hard to reap the harvest and then the grasshoppers come and steal everything. And that's basically what it says. It says they come on them like locusts. I wonder if the Bugs Life people read the story of Gideon and came up with a story. But it comes, they come on them like locusts and they steal everything. And so what ends up happening to God's people is they have to take to the hills. And they live in the caves and they make their caves their dwellings. And it gets so bad that it says at the end that they cry out for help to the Lord. What we have to understand is that if we're going to have faithful integrity to God, we need to have God's charity towards us. And sometimes God's charity towards us looks like a severe humbling. Can I get an amen from Christians who have been Christians for a long time? It requires a severe humbling. Uh, One way you could say it is this, is the Lord won't be all you need until you realize he's all you have. And sometimes God loves us enough to take everything from us so that we realize that we have him and nothing can take him from us. And that's what God is doing here. He's severely humbling them. Have you been severely humbled? You will never have faithful integrity to God until you've been severely humbled. And this is an act of God's grace. You might say, how in the world is that God's grace? 
for God to humble me and, and to take everything I have and to make my life miserable. Well, it says in many places in the scripture that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And so it's a grace that he would humble you so that he could give you more grace. Um, it's a grace because God said in the law, a few books back in the Bible, in the book of Leviticus, that if Israel worshiped other gods, he would have them destroyed and kicked out. But here he doesn't have them destroyed and kicked out. He just has them humbled. Isn't God kind? God is, in a sense, being gracious towards his own covenant that he made with his people. And so he humbles them. Um, and like a loving father, he disciplines them. This is what loving fathers do. They discipline their children that they might come back. And so what does Israel do? They cry out to God for help. Now, I want you to notice this. They don't cry out to God in repentance. They cry out to God for relief. And I think there's a bit of warning in there for us. Many of us want God's relief, but we don't want his rule. But God, again, is gracious to them. Look at what he does in verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on the account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt, and I brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove out them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites, whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now, I think that's really funny. They cry out for help. They cry out to be helped out. But before God helps them out, he calls them out. And isn't that God's grace too? Sometimes, before God helps you out, he will call you out. Because what you need more than relief is truth. You need the truth of who he is, you need the truth of what he's done for you, and you need to face the truth of what you've done against him. Then you can be healed. Uh, it's like when a little child is riding their bike and they fall on their bike and they scrape their knee and they get all that asphalt in their knee. You know just how terrible that is. What do they want? They think a Band-Aid's going to make it all better. <laughs> Give me a Band-Aid. But as a parent, you know that a Band-Aid's not going to be the thing they need. They need peroxide. <laughs> So you hold them down and strap them down. It's the worst thing in the world to hold your kid down. And you scrub them down and you pour peroxide in and you cleanse the wound. That's the truth of what they need. And, and the reality is that sometimes we want relief, but what we really need is truth. And truth hurts. Truth hurts. But it's the grace of God, isn't it? Sometimes we need to be called out. Sometimes we need to come and face the truth of who he is. The Proverbs say that uh, profuse are the kisses of an enemy, but blessed are the blows of a friend. And here we see God acting like a friend because he's willing to call out his own people and he sends a prophet before he helps them out. And I, I just love how the, the prophet comes and what he does is he reminds them of God's faithfulness. It is God who has been faithful to you this whole time. It is God who delivered you out of slavery. It is God who gave you this land. It is God who is your God. Why are you worshiping these other gods? And it just ends with, you have not obeyed. Sometimes we need to face the truth. And I like here that God sends somebody else to do it because that's a lot of times how God speaks truth. It's through other people, isn't it? And I've been a pastor long enough to know that we've baptized many people at this church 
who love, they're all rah-rah for Jesus, like cheerleaders for Jesus, until a friend calls them out. And when a friend calls them out, what do they do? Walk away. But this is a call to remember that a friend calling you out with truth, sincerely truth from the Bible, is not because they hate you, it's because they love you. It's because they want to help you. It's because, yeah, it hurts, but it cleanses. That's what the word of God does. And so if we want to be a people of faithful integrity, we have to be willing to accept this part of God's charity, the truth that wounds. But it wounds to heal. It wounds to heal. So that's the second movement of God's charity is um, a prophetic rebuke. The third movement of God's charity is this, an intimate pursuit. And what we're going to see here is now the story shifts from being about the people of Israel to this one man, Gideon. And it shows that God is not just concerned about people as a whole. He also cares about individuals. And he comes and he draws near to this man, Gideon, whom he's going to call to be a deliverer for the people. And it's a really fun story, so feel free to laugh. Okay, A few weeks ago, we read a funny story, and you guys all like felt guilty about laughing. You don't have to feel guilty about laughing. It's okay. It's a funny story. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, <coughs> the Ab- <coughs> excuse me, the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in a wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, Why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So there's this dude named Gideon. And he's part of God's people. He's part of Israel. And he is threshing wheat in a wine press. And this is actually something that he's doing because he's smart. Because remember, the other uh, enemies are coming on them like Amalekites. And they're coming, the Amalekites and the Midians are coming on them like locusts and they're taking all their food. And so a wine press was this layered hole in the ground that had a built up wall around it. And you could kind of go underground and you could not be seen from the hills. And so Gideon is down there threshing wheat. And what that just means is in in order to get the grains out of wheat, you have to throw it up in the air and let the wind blow the chaff away, and then the grains will fall to the ground. But it's something you do in the wind, not in an enclosed area. So this had to be miserable and dusty, but it just goes to show how bad the oppression really was. And Gideon is doing this kind of because he's a little bit of a coward. He's down there. He's scared, even though God just showed up and and rebuked them. Gideon thinks that he's kind of all alone and he's scared down there and he's threshing wheat on his own. And it says that the angel of the Lord comes and he sits under a, a tree and he watches him. Now, if you look down to verse 14, the angel of the Lord is referred to as the Lord himself. So what this is called is this is called the Christophany. It's Jesus showing up in the Old Testament before he's born in a manger. And so we see Pre-incarnate Jesus showing up, and while Gideon is freaking out, Jesus is just chilling out. He's just watching him. He's just chilling out. And that, I think there's something for us in that. There's a lot of things in life that cause us a lot of stress. But God's just chilling out, watching. <laughs> it's, there's nothing too big for his shoulders. Nothing too big for him. He's just watching Gideon, which is just really funny. He's just like, you know, he's, he's the one doing Facebook stalking on Gideon right now. And then he goes up to Gideon in this intimate pursuit. 
And he says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. I don't know if sweeter words could be said to a man who's scared like this. First of all, the Lord is with you. To belong to God means that he is with you. That's the most cherished thing, or it ought to be the most cherished thing amongst all Christians, is that God is with us. And he says to him, the Lord is with you. Now, does Gideon deserve this? Absolutely not. They've been worshiping other gods, but yet, though they've abandoned God, God has been chasing after them. That's grace. That's charity. And then he calls him a mighty man of valor, which should make you laugh, because this guy is not a mighty man of valor. He's a coward threshing wheat in a wine press. He's not out there fighting the armies. He's in there scared, threshing wheat. And Gideon decides to argue with Jesus. Anybody ever argue with Jesus? (laughs) Verse 13, he says, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And so Gideon is basically like, Really? God is with us? Have you seen our situation lately? Where the heck is he? You ever feel like this? You're feeling the same feelings that people in the Bible feel. Where is God? And look at how God responds in verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not, I send you. So Gideon argues with Jesus and Jesus doesn't even acknowledge what he said. He says, just go in this might of yours and save Israel. God has a plan for Gideon. He has a plan that he's gonna raise him up to be the deliverer. And so with this again, Gideon argues, and he says in verse 15, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So God says to Gideon, he says, Gideon, I want you to go and save Israel. And Gideon's like, Me? Do you realize who you're working with? Me. God says, yeah, you. I have a habit of building a strong house with weak bricks. Or as Martin Luther said, I draw straight lines with crooked sticks, and I choose you. And I'm going to use you to go and deliver Israel. And it says, I will be with you. And because I will be with you, you will strike them as you strike one man. Now, that had to be crazy words to Gideon, this oppressed farmer who's scared But it says there that the thing that gives him the strength is this. God says, but I will be with you. That's a game changer. When God is with you, it's a game changer. I've said this before, but I mean it. If you are playing a bunch of people in basketball and you're getting your butt kicked and then LeBron shows up and he's on your team, that's a game changer. When God shows up and he's on your team, that's a game changer. And that's why he can strike this whole enemy these enemy armies as one man. And so look at how Gideon responds. Does he believe? Not quite. Gideon says uh, in verse 17, if now I found favor in your eyes, show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And then Jesus says, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into the house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah flour, the meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot, and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and unleavened cakes and put them on a rock and put broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff 
that was in his hand and touched the meat and unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord vanished in his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord and Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called the Lord his peace. To this day, it stands at the Ophrah, which belongs to the Abbey's rights. So what happens here? So Gideon is having this dialogue with Jesus and then Gideon still doesn't believe. And so he says, okay, show me a sign. And Jesus is like, okay, I'll show you a sign. And Gideon's like, I'm gonna bounce and make you some food. You just wait here. And Jesus says, I'll wait, but doesn't that show us the patience of God? God is willing to wait for us. He's willing to wait. It shows us his charity. He doesn't have to, he's willing to wait. And so Gideon goes and he makes a huge meal. It says that he kills a whole goat. And if you've ever butchered an animal, that's a lot of work and a lot of meat. And then he takes an ephah of flour and makes bread cakes. 22 liters of flour. That's like a barrel, like this tall of flour and makes that much bread. Like maybe he's like, this dude needs to eat. Jesus is a little skinny. He needs to get a little meat on his bones. I'm gonna make him some food. But what just strikes me about this is that Jesus waits because Jesus is concerned not only about the victory he's gonna bring, but he's also concerned about winning Gideon's heart because God pursues us intimately, and that's his charity. And then, the next movement of charity we see here is a merciful pardon. So when Gideon brings this cart of food to Jesus, Jesus says, pour it out on the rock, which you have to laugh at that. He just slaved, you know, where's all my cooks at? Like you just, you cook and you cook and you cook and you really want them to enjoy this meal, and Jesus is like, yeah, pour it on the rock. But what is Jesus doing there? Jesus is telling Gideon, you've totally misunderstood who I am. I'm gonna turn the dinner table into a place of sacrifice. I'm gonna turn the dinner table into an altar because I'm God. And when you have an encounter with the living God, it becomes a place of worship. And so Gideon puts the meat on the rock and he pours the broth over it. And then Jesus, this is so cool, he reaches out his staff and he touches it and then it gets consumed with fire and then Jesus goes up in the fire. And then Gideon says, alas, I have just seen the angel of the Lord face to face. In other words, I just saw God, now I'm gonna die. But then God the Father speaks from heaven, you will not die, I'm granting you peace. There's a place of worship, and then there's a merciful pardon. And we ask, how in the world can there be a pardon without a sacrifice? It's in there. It's a little shadow of what is to come. Don't you notice that Jesus goes up with the fire as if he is the sacrifice that brings pardon? It's a foreshadow to what is to come that one day Jesus really would come in the flesh and die on a cross so that we could really have peace with God. And because Jesus knew that that's what he was gonna do, he had no problem admitting peace to him right then. And so he grants him peace. And because of this, this is what changes Gideon's heart. This movement of charity. And there we see a turning point where Gideon starts to live a life of faithful integrity. But I would just like to say to all of us this, that you have to go through those four movements of charity until you can live a life of faithful integrity. You have to be severely humbled. 
You have to be rebuked by the truth of God. You have to see that he really does care about you. Did you notice that he called Gideon a mighty man of valor, even though Gideon was a coward? Why is that? It was because God was choosing to see Gideon as what he was going to do through him, not as how he was acting now. And isn't that true in the gospel? What does God call us in the gospel? He calls us sons and daughters who are righteous. And we say back to God, have you seen my thoughts lately? And God says, yeah, but I'm choosing to see you through what I'm doing through you and for you, not through what you're doing right now. So have you had an intimate pursuit with God? And then have you understood your merciful pardon? When you get pardoned, when you understand the depth of God's love towards you, it's then that you change and you start living a life of faithful integrity. Some of you are checking out church and you're checking out Christianity and you're wondering, why are Christians so weepy? And what happened to my friend who used to be cool and now they're weird and love Jesus? But then they cry every time they start talking about forgiveness. It's because the merciful pardon has sunk deep into their heart. They realize that there really can be forgiveness for their wrongs. That they don't walk in condemnation anymore or shame anymore. They walk in the love of God the Father. And this all happens right here with the story of Gideon. And it shows us what is to come in Jesus Christ. So there's God's charity. And when you really accept God's charity, it leads to a life of faithful integrity. And so what does that look like? It looks like three things. It looks like repentance, community, and wrestling with your doubts. That's what it looks like to live a life of faithful integrity. So let's look at verse 25. It says, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down from the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here, with the stones laid up in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So here, what what do we see the first command? After God moves towards Gideon in grace, Then God says, okay, now I want you to follow me. And the first thing I want you to do in following me is repent. Repentance is the first step of faithful integrity. And all repentance is, I know if you're new to church, it sounds like a scary word. But all it is, it's a word that means this. Remove what's at the center of your life and put God at the center of your life. And God says, I want you to remove these idols that your whole city is built around And I want you to cut them down and I want you to build an altar to me instead. And I love that. And so these idols are the idol of Asherah. It's an Asherah pole, it's like a big totem pole. And then there was another uh, idol to the God named Baal. And what they had there is that was in the center of the city and it happened to be in Gideon's dad's backyard. And so God says, okay, you wanna follow me? First thing you need to do before I deliver you is you need to repent. And you're going to call the whole city to repentance. And you have to go into the heart of the city, into the heart of your dad's house. And you have to cut down these idols and you have to replace it with worship to me. And so Gideon does. He, uh, but he does it not perfectly. <laughs> he says that he doesn't do it in the middle of the day. He does it at night because he's scared. And I just think that that's interesting. 
because God still blesses this. And sometimes we're too afraid to repent because we know that our repentance is gonna be imperfect, but imperfect repentance is still okay. We just need to put God at the center. We need to put God at the center. And so that's what he does. And the reason for this is because God is saying, if I'm gonna deliver you, I'm not gonna compete with this worship of these other false gods. God agrees with what Ricky Bobby says on Talladega Nights. If you ain't first, you last. And God's not gonna play that game where he's not being seen as first in his people's eyes. He's not gonna play that game. And so he says to Gideon, Gideon, if you want me to do this, if you want me to help you out, you need to choose me. And maybe God is saying that to you. Maybe you've been wanting to live a life of integrity. You've been wanting to live a life of faithfulness to God, but you need God to say, you need to choose. There's a friend of mine in our church. He, um, before he became a Christian, he was smoking a lot of weed. And uh, he he said that he used to talk with one of his friends, an atheist friend, and they would smoke weed and talk about whether or not there was a God. His atheist friend didn't believe there was a God and tried to convince him that there wasn't, but he just couldn't get there in his heart. Eventually, this guy uh, became a Christian, but he didn't stop smoking weed. And he used to like to smoke weed and read the Bible. I guess it makes it more exciting. And one day he goes to the park and he's sitting there reading his Bible and about ready to uh, smoke some weed And he feels something punch him in the side of the face and knock everything to the ground. And then he just heard the word, choose. And he understood what God was saying to him is this. I'm not going to compete. You choose. You choose me and taking refuge in me, or you choose that and taking refuge in that. You choose right now. You're going to put me at the center or that at the center. God is not going to compete with other false gods in our life. And I just wonder if he's saying that to some of you today. Maybe there's a relationship, maybe there's a career, maybe there's all these good things that you might have, but you've been placing them as God things and God says to you today, choose. Will you put me at the center? That was the problem with Israel. They lacked integrity because they had other gods at the center. And I think in the American church, in suburban Wingfield Springs, Spanish Springs and Sparks, we have many other gods at the center. It's easy to put money at the center. It's easy to put comfort at the center. It's easy to put our families at the center. But God needs to be at the center. That's what faithful integrity looks like. And our families, our jobs, our relationships will all fall apart if he's not at the center. He needs to be at the center. It's the first step to faithful integrity. God will not compete with other false gods. He is the only God. And so that's the first thing that he has Gideon do. And so Gideon does it, though he does it imperfectly. (laughs) He does it a little cowardly, but that's okay. He still does it. So the second thing that we see about faithful integrity is it requires community. Look at verse 28. It says, when the men of the town arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that in that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal? 
Or will you save him? Who contends for him shall be put to death by mourning? If he is a God, let him contend for himself, but if but his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbabel. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. So here's the scene. Because Gideon broke down these altars, which would have been beautiful works of art, and they were the, the city's gods, what happened to the city? They freaked out. Which Christians, you need to know this, that sometimes when you repent to God, your friends and family aren't gonna like it. When you decide to put God first, it's gonna cause rejection on your behalf. People will hate you, and that's what happens. And so they come knocking on Gideon's dad's door, and they say, you need to hand us over Gideon so that he, we can kill him. Now, this was Gideon's dad's altar, and so you'd expect Gideon's dad to be ticked, but it seems that Gideon's cutting down of this altar changed his dad's heart and put God back in the center for his whole family. And so instead, Gideon's dad comes out and he says this, no, I'm not going to hand over my son. In fact, it's kind of silly that we're over here trying to defend gods anyways. If they were really gods, do we need to defend them? And so Gideon's dad stands up for him. And so what I just want, and that changes the entire community. And so I just want to point out here that faithful integrity requires brothers and sisters and parents and sons in community together putting God at the center. And I also want you to notice that when Gideon went to cut down this altar, in verse 27, it says that he took 10 men. There's no such thing as pursuing God on your own. It requires community. And anybody who's been a Christian for a really long time and is a healthy Christian has a community of believers and friends around them who are also helping each other to put God at the center. And it requires community. And it requires not just community of people of the same age, it requires community of multiple generations. And that's what we see here. Gideon going out and being courageous enough to cut down the altar, and then the, next gener- the, his, the previous generation standing up and having his back. And because of that, we're gonna see a revival happens in the land of Israel. It's insane. But it's really a pattern of how God works. If you study church history and revivals and church planting, it's normally the young people who go out and plant churches because all you gray hairs and no hairs out there say, yeah, because we know we ain't stupid, you know. (laughs) It's a lot of work to get out there and plant a church. And that's one of the ways that God reaches the next generation is by sending out young people to start new churches. But those churches don't last unless older generations stand behind them. And living stones... We will not last unless we continue to raise up young leaders that we're willing to send and we continue as older people to have their back. We need to be a church that's willing to pass the torch and continue to say, older and younger, we're putting God at the center. That when the younger people are right, older people, you need to have the humility to admit it. And when the older people are right, younger people, you need to have the humility to admit it so that we can support each other, and that's how God works. It requires community. You cannot do this alone. Now, the last thing that uh, we see here with uh, faithful integrity is, you know, it starts with repentance. It requires community, but it also involves wrestling with doubts. Um, Basically, what happens in verse 33 through 35 
is God gathered, the spirit of the Lord comes on Gideon and he calls the troops and he gathers the armies to go to war. But then right when they're about to go to war, Gideon gets scared again. And so we see this here in verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. So Gideon has the army, and he says, Okay, God, you said that you would go and save Israel by my hand. As you have said, if I'm going to trust you, I need to give you, you need to give me another sign. So he says, I'm going to lay out this fleece on the ground. And if the fleece gets wet, but the rest of the ground around it is dry, then I'll know that you're speaking. And so he does it. And the next morning, what happens? The fleece is wet, wet enough that you can wring out a bunch of water and the whole ground is dry. A miracle. And so God, again, is charitable towards Gideon. And then look at what Gideon does again. He says uh, in verse 39, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just one more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on the ground let it be dew. And God did so that night and it was dry on the fleece only and on the ground there was dew. So again, so God gave him this miracle already. I mean, think about this. God has shown up to him, told him to cut down the idol and he did it and he didn't die. And then he did another miracle and then Gideon's like, okay, I just need one more miracle if I'm gonna trust your word. Don't you feel like Gideon sometimes? <laughs> and he puts the fleece out again. He says, this time I want you to do the harder thing, which is make the ground wet and the fleece dry. And then God does that. And so then Gideon basically is like, okay, I'm gonna trust what you have said. But what we see here is we see really good what a relationship with God actually looks like. It involves a lot of doubts. Now, a lot of people have read this passage and says, this is how you can seek God's will. This isn't, Gideon knows exactly what God's will is. It says it twice. It says what you have said. Gideon knows that God's will is that he would go out and deliver Israel from the hand of their enemies. He knows what God's will is. He's not questioning God's will. He's questioning whether or not God will be faithful to his promises. And that's a big difference. And so I think we can all relate to that. We read the Bible. We know what God says, but don't we question it? Don't we wrestle with those doubts? And what we see here is that God is not afraid of us wrestling with him in our doubts. And you know, there's a lot of Christians who think, man, doubt, that's the enemy to faith. Doubt is not the enemy to your faith. It's the sparring partner that will build an enduring faith. Like think about like in MMA or in boxing, if you want to go and you want to fight a fight, you could hit the heavy bag and you could do a thousand pull-ups and push-ups and jumping rope, but you're never really going to get good unless you have a sparring partner. And with this, God says, okay, I'll let you wrestle with your doubts so that you can know that I'm legit. And some of you are going through extreme doubts right now, and I just want to assure you, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. It means you're actually paying attention. Um. And those doubts, those doubts aren't enemies to your faith. They're God giving you an opportunity so that your strength, your faith could be built up stronger. And what you need to know 
is that if you go and you try to wrestle those doubts on your own, they're going to whoop your butt. But if you go to God with your doubts, he'll be charitable to you. And eventually your faith will come out stronger on the other side. And that's what happens with Gideon. And as we'll talk about next week, the really fun story, Gideon goes and he really does deliver all of God's people as if he struck them by the hand of one man. And so that's what you need to know. That if we're going to be a people of faithful integrity, it starts with God's charity. You need to understand that he will humble us. He will rebuke us. He will pursue us. He will pardon us. And then that will lead to us repenting and it'll lead to us living in community. And then it'll lead to a life of wrestling with our doubts. And you might be asking the question, well, I think I would have a little bit easier time believing if God showed up to me, how come he won't show up to me like this? But church family, this is up just an appetizer to how God would later show up. In this passage, the angel of the Lord shows up for a moment. But there would be a day later when you'd get to the book of Matthew when Jesus shows up for a lifetime. And we don't just see him showing up in one conversation. We see him showing up and doing many miracles, many conversations, many teachings, and it changes the whole world. That's why we're here in Sparks, Nevada today. And you would say, well, I just wish God would give me a sign. Well, he did give us a sign, a much greater sign than a stinking fleece. He gave us the sign of the resurrection. Because on the cross, Jesus died for your sins, but he didn't stay on the cross. He resurrected from the dead. And that fact alone has split history and caused many in all nations to worship him. And so this passage should just give us a hunger to want to see God more, but it should also give us a hunger to the scriptures because in the scriptures, we get a feast on how God has come in an even greater way. Amen? So let's be a church of faithful integrity, but know that you can't do it unless you have God's charity. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. We are just like Israel. We value other things more than we value you. We've placed many good things as God things. We pray that you would give us the courage and the strength and the ability to go into the center of our heart and remove those things and place worship of you there instead. Jesus, we pray that you would pardon us. We pray that you would forgive us for our many sins. And we thank you for your patience towards us, just like you have patience towards Gideon in this whole passage. Lord, you are so good and so patient. We love you. Thank you for your patience. I pray if there's anybody in this room wrestling with their doubts, I pray that they would understand that they're not crazy, but that you are allowing those doubts so that their faith could be built even stronger. Help them to wrestle well. Help them to contend with you in the midst of their doubts and help them not to try to handle them on their own. And help us, God, to have the courage to love each other enough, to defend each other, and to live in community so that we could put you at the center of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.